Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow man, hoping we can make Yes, we do think we can, and that's why we meet here every Tuesday to talk about how we can, how we can make the world better. We believe that we can, and it's not us. It's the fact that Christ is in us and that we are a part of the kingdom of God and a whole different rule than what we see at work in the world. So that's what makes us very excited about uh, our show every Tuesday, Blog Talk Radio, is we get a chance to talk to some really pretty amazing people. And there are people who are, uh, as Christians, most of them out in the world, uh, working, seeking to bring what they know about the kingdom of God to play on the world as they know it and uh, the, the places where they live and work and move. And, and uh, that's why I, I, I love this show so much. And uh, tonight we have uh, probably for the, at least a third, maybe the fourth time I haven't, it's been so long. I haven't counted them all. Um, uh, one of my favorite guests of all, uh, Oz Guinness. Oz, Oz is a, author and social critic, uh, the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the, uh, the Dublin brewer. He was born in China, World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries. And uh, he, uh, he was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. He was expelled with many other foreigners in 51 and returned to Europe, where he was educated in England and completed his undergraduate degree in University of London and um, Doctor of Philosophy and Social Sciences from Oriel College in Oxford. So uh, uh, we are, uh, ha- Oz has written or edited over more than 30 books. And um, we are going to be talking tonight about a, an essay uh, he wrote and uh, about this country in crisis and uh, boy uh, there couldn't be anything more uh, more timely for us right now uh, two weeks away from the election um, what's going on in America and uh, so uh, Oz uh, once again a, a very warm welcome to uh, the catch on blog talk radio thank you John what a great pleasure to be with you again just before uh, we went on here uh, on the air, Oz, you were you were just starting to talk about um, the world situation. I had made a comment about uh, 
the the, the crisis we're in and and uh, can we pick that up? You you were just starting to tell me about what you've been through with China and other places. <laughs> how do you how do you yeah. assess where we are right now? What is, what is going on in this country? Well, John, let me tie it into what you said intriguing me at the beginning about improving our world. <laughs> you know, the climax of the Revolutionary War was in October 1781 at Yorktown. And legend has it that when the British troops were ordered to march out and surrender, they were told to play a 17th century ballad, The World Turned Upside Down. Now, that ballad had been at the heart of the English Revolution in 1642. Hmm. And the idea was very simply this, because the English Revolution came out of the Reformation and went back to the book of Exodus, a very simple idea. God creates order, humans create disorder, so the Lord subverts the chaos of the human world, and so what we call revolution is actually turning the world the right way up again. Hmm. Now, yeah. now, the English Revolution was the first. The English, the American, the French, 1789, the Russian, and the Chinese. Oh, boy, I was there in China. But hmm. here's the point. The first two were different in that the English failed, Americans succeeded, but they were both similar. They came out of the Reformation and went back to the Book of Exodus. And they had that biblical idea of revolution. Whereas the French, Russian, and Chinese were all anti-biblical, anti-religious, and very anti-Christian. Hmm. Now, why, why is that important? Well, for a simple reason. If you look at the deep divisions in this country now, you know, some people blame social media. Some blame the president. Some say it's the coastals, California against the Midwest. Some say it's the nationalists over against the globalists. And I would argue, I'm not alone, the deepest division is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution and those who understand it from the perspective of ideas that come down from the French Revolution. And they're very, very different. Hmm. So, that's really underlying. This summer, we've seen a lot of things in the streets, Antifa and Black Lives Matter and so on. And if you know the ideologies behind these, they're ideas that come not from the American Revolution, but from the French Revolution. And that's why understanding these differences is, is so incredibly important in today's world. Can you... Uh... Okay, let's talk about that a little bit then. Let's can you outline for us what the major differences are between um, the, the the French Revolution and the American? Well, they came out of different sources. One's the Bible, the other was the French Enlightenment with Voltaire and Rousseau and so on. And there are a whole number of differences, John, but the leading one this year in 2020 is how do you address wrongs. Hmm. Now, there's a general agreement. Take, say, the awful killing of George Floyd. Almost everyone, thank God, admits that was horrendous. Now, as people agree in saying this is wrong, this is injustice, this is evil, or whatever, the mm -hmm. differences come in how you address it. Ah. 
because the radical left, which comes out of postmodernism and what's critical race theory and so on, you know, you, you look at what's called the pyramids of power, majority, minority, superior, subordinate, the oppressor, the victim. And so you look at men and women, races, young and old, whatever the difference is, and then you find the victim and weaponize the victim in order to try and overthrow the status quo. Ah, and of course, you we- okay, weaponize the victim. Is that what you said? Yes, that's what they do. All right. All right. So the, the, in, the, there's two watchwords in what they say. One is the word hegemony, a long word, which simply means dominance. Who's got the power? If you have it, I don't. If I have it, you don't, and so on. The other key word is antagonisms. In other words, you find the, the, the clashes between groups, straight and gay, and so on. But the, the problem is you're not really solving the problem. You're setting up group against group, and you end with power conflicts without end. And the only outcome eventually will be the peace, as the Romans put it, of despotism. Now, you compare that with the biblical way. The earliest voices against injustice were the prophets. And the most powerful reformers in Western history were followers of Jesus. Las Casas against the conquistadores or William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. But what you see there is using truth to address wrong. And then you call for repentance, a complete turnabout of mind and heart. Then you ask for confession going on record against yourself. Mm. And then you can have forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually an incredible radical novelty in history. Mm. And you can go on down the line. And then, of course, you end with reconciliation. So you see, we both agree in addressing what's wrong. This is outrageous. This is evil. This is unjust. The, different come, the difference comes in how you address it. And I would argue the radical left has no final answer and makes things actually worse, whereas you have in the Bible, whether the prophets or the way of Jesus, a very radical solution of truly turning enemies into friends. Hmm. Hmm. How... That, you know, that makes so much sense. And... For instance, I'm I'm thinking about, but, you, but how does this work on a national level? You know, I mean, uh, I can understand how we can use truth and forgiveness and reconciliation. But, um, and suddenly, uh, the the only thought I had was going back to uh, South Africa and the apartheid and um, the truth and reconciliation. Um, uh, meetings that they had and the forgiveness that's, mm-hmm. that was extended, would that be an example, uh, Oz, of what could happen at a national level? Yeah, absolutely. Although it's even clearer in Rwanda, where you had real Christian content to both truth and reconciliation and many incredible stories surrounding it. The problem mm. in America, and you may know that um, Robert Reich Clinton's Labor Secretary last week called for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hmm. But the trouble in America at the moment, and particularly among the radical left, there is neither a solid view of truth, 
nor is there a foundation for reconciliation. So if you, you think of the last 50 years, John, truth. God is dead. Truth is dead. What's left? Power. So relativism, objective truth's gone out the door. Emotivism, what I feel is true. And then mm, you have what's yeah. called social constructionism. We are making our social worlds and so on. So truth is effectively dead in American public life. And what you have is power. And that's absolute disastrous because might overcomes right. And mm. so on. You can see that in the press and so on. Now, you say, what can we do at the national level? Well, think of a hundred and however many years ago in, in Lincoln's time. They're on the edge of the Civil War, real slavery, not just a memory. And slavery is worse than racism because people are actually in servitude. But Lincoln addressed the evil slavery in the light of the Declaration. People are born equal, created equal by God. Mm -hmm. And then he called for a new birth of freedom. So America always goes forward best by going back first, which is actually a biblical idea. And mm. the trouble is today we have no leader calling America's back to its best first principles. And that's what we need a Lincoln-like leader to do that today, to call Americans back to, I would call it, a new, new birth of freedom. Because America's gone off the rails again. In other words, Lincoln died. And then you had the horror of the Jim Crow era. Then you had the civil rights period, which really did dismantle the legal and the bureaucratic forms of oppression. But they mm -hmm. didn't clear up the whole of racism. And now we have the radical left and its postmodern ideas. They are exploiting that residual racism, making it sound as if it's as bad as it was before. It's not. But we've got to face it wherever it is. Uh, how, but, uh, but Oz, you know, how, how can we do that um, as individual? Well, remember, John, remember, yeah. remember that justice in the Bible is not primarily institutional. It's personal, interpersonal. God is just. God hates injustice. He calls us to be just and to hate and fight injustice. Now, justice begins the way humans made in the image of God treat their fellow humans made in the image of God. So one of the worst things the current president does is his tweeting and his mm -hmm. ad hominem insults. Now, his opponents answer in kind. They, they, they fully reciprocate. The social media are an incredible source of injustice. So we are followers of Jesus. We're called to love our enemies. So with truth and respect for people made in the image of God and an attempt to love those who are against us, justice begins with each one of us the way we talk to anyone every day. So we've got to see a reformation of language. If you look in the Old Testament, what's called evil speech, the rabbis put it bluntly that evil hmm. speech is almost tantamount to murder. 
Yeah. Because you have a very high view of words. Words create worlds. And words can destroy worlds. So justice for all of us starts with the way husbands treat their wives. You know, we treat people at work. We treat people when we answer them on Instagram or whatever. Mm. And it, it, justice begins with each of us. And we, it's not just something to do with the Department of Justice in Washington. No, no, it starts here with personal, interpersonal behavior. Mm. So if we have enough of that going on, uh, we might make a little difference. Oh, absolutely. And you think of something radical like freedom. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, like forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You know, people take forgiveness and treat it rather casually as a cliche. But forgiveness is very closely tied to freedom. In other words, when someone, the forgiver, forgives, the claim against the wrong of the past is dismissed. So the burden of the past for the forgiven, gone. And that burden carried into the future, gone. So forgiveness is an essential for people being freed from the past and freed to open up a new future. Now we've Uh, got to make these things very practical in our families and out into the big issues of public life too. But things like forgiveness are actually very radical. And if you look at human history, they're novel. hmm. In other words, if you look at the pagans, the ancients, or even the moderns, if someone's done wrong, the only way to respond to it is to try and appease the person to whom you've done wrong or to abase yourself before them as if you're no threat to them at all. Now, that's a pretty hopeless way of doing it. It doesn't make an enemy into a friend. But forgiveness is far more radical. As Lincoln said, you can truly turn an enemy into a friend through all that forgiveness truly means, because it's tied in with freedom. Mm, mm. Would uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to see what this might look like if uh, you you brought up the uh, the George Floyd situation. You know what what would happen if um, Floyd's family came out with a public statement of forgiveness. Uh, Well, John, think of what happened in South Carolina, in um, Charleston. Yes. You remember when Dylan Roof went into the black church and killed all but three in the Bible study, having been with them a full hour and listened, then took out his gun from his backpack and shot them. You know, he wanted to start a race war. And the town was on edge because of the history of racism in South Carolina. But at that hearing three days later, when the family went in, some of them, one woman showed a blood-stained Bible that was still pink, washed with the blood of her son. Mm. And when one after another said, I forgive you, I forgive you, the race war was stopped in its tracks. And you can see the story in Northern Ireland again and again when Christian forgiveness comes in. In other words, without it, you have wrong counter wrong. 
wrong yeah. retaliation. And the, and then it the goes equivalent on, of on, a Corsican blood feud. The yeah. Montagues against the Capulets, you know, the mafia against the mafia and so on. And America's increasingly like that. And what forgiveness does is just cut right across it and stops the retaliation. Now, we've got to practice it, and it's a very costly way of responding, but it's the right way. Hmm. Hmm. I want to go back. That's fantastic. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, the uh, the two revolutions, 1789, 1776. Um, can you contrast those a little bit more, especially – Let's talk about why the 1776 revolution succeeded. Well, let me mention another huge difference that's very important currently. I mentioned the wrongs. Yeah. Another one is they had different views of humanity, human nature. Ah. 1776, through the Reformation had the realism of a biblical view of humanity. So the first mention of checks and balances is in the Bible. What the Jews call the three crowns, the monarchy, the priesthood, and the prophets. The prophet, who was the guardian of the covenant, could actually challenge the king. Take Elijah challenging Ahab when he stole Naboth's vineyard and so on. You know, you had three branches of government there. Hmm. Now, that becomes separation of powers, checks and balances. And, you know, Madison, who's Federalist 51, put it into the Constitution. You know, he was taught by Witherspoon at Princeton about the realism because people have fallen. Now, in other words, the American Revolution immensely fallen. That important today because the opposite, the French Revolution, was utopian. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere in chains. So remove a chain or two, whatever it is, psychological, political, whatever, we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. That's the idea behind the sexual revolution. Have enough orgasms and we're all happy, free, and fulfilled. Well, that's nonsense. And if you look in history, the greatest evil has been done by utopians. That surprises people. But whenever you have a gap between the ideal, humans should be free and all this, and the real, humans are fallen, greedy, whatever, you bridge the gap. This is where the utopians go wrong. You bridge it by violence. And that's why utopian revolutions are always violent, and they justify mm-hmm. violent. So that's very important. You take, say, the current discussion. The Democrats have hinted, some have openly wanted, to scrap the Supreme Court in the sense of packing it. You know, if you have nine, that's not enough. Yeah. Let's put 15 in and next another six will be all Democrats. What they're undoing is the checks and balances. And they're forgetting. Checks and balances represent the fact the founders knew that humans are fallen. In other words... All power corrupts. Power not only oppresses the weak. Here's the point, John. It corrupts the powerful. So you Mm. need checks and balances. You've got to have separation of powers. And if the Democrats do that, as FDR tried to do it in the 1930s, 
it'll just ruin the American Republic. America will be finished. You've already got one-party faculties across the country. You've got one-party high-tech companies. Think of what's happening in the last week with censorship. You've got one-party states, California. If you get to the place where you have one-party national politics, America's finished. Mm. In other words, a realistic view of human nature and therefore separation of powers, checks and balances, is incredibly important theologically, spiritually, but also politically. Hmm. Well, Oz, you are, uh, as we've talked about, you are, you, are, you are not an American. You're not a part of this country. You are an observer. You probably can see us much better than we can see ourselves. Where do you think? What do you think is going to? What do you think is our uh, going to happen? What? <laughs> uh, what's going to happen John, after November third? You know, you've got any ideas? About that? John, I'm not a I'm not a prophet. I don't predict the future. The future yeah. is open. That's the whole essence of freedom. Depending on choices, certain okay. consequences follow. But put it like this: You remember when the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians in the New Testament? He says. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You're following a different gospel, another gospel. Hmm. They come to faith in the gospel of grace, and then they were following a legalism. What I'm saying to America, in essence, is who has bewitched you, Americans? You're following, often without realizing it, another revolution. You're following ideas coming in from the liberal left and the radical left today, which go back to the French Revolution, not to your own revolution. And that's crazy. In other words, John, here's the challenge. Whoever gets in this time, the real issue is then joined. Because what we're seeing is a hollowing out of tradition. I'm a liberal. Traditional liberalism believes strongly in freedom. But its foundations have been undermined. And the secular forms of it have become increasingly hollow. So now, as I described, you've got a radical neo-Marxism coming from the radical left. If a hollowed-out liberalism, which would be my favorite position, not hollowed out, but strong, if a hollowed-out liberalism is drawn further towards the radical left, and became dominant, that would probably spell the end of the American Republic as we know it. So I'm making no predictions. Nothing is inevitable. Mm-hmm. We make the future through our choices. Nothing is inevitable. If people wake up now, they could re-explore and rather be like Lincoln and calling for a new birth of freedom. But people have to understand what a true understanding of freedom is and the dangers of some of the current ideas. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the radical left and and the the errors there, and tying it to the French Revolution. What 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 are the errors on the other side? Are 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 there errors on the right? Uh, what do we need to look of out course. for yeah. uh, for there? 
those that, those that are right wing, let's say the KKK and white supremacists and so on, they are horrendous too. But remember two things. First, the left is much more powerful because of what the radicals in the late 60s, when you and I first met, they called for a long march through the institutions, 1968. Mm. They knew they couldn't win in the streets. So you had to win the colleges, universities, the press and media, and the world of Hollywood and entertainment. Win those, and you win the culture. Mm. And 50 years later, they've effectively done it. So the left is more powerful because it has much of the university world behind it. Also, remember this, though. If you look at Europe, one of the lessons is that when you have the left and the right, they become very similar at the extremes. Huh. So the left, calls ev- the left calls everyone to the right of them fascists. But actually, Hitler was not a fascist. Mussolini was a fascist. Hitler was a national socialist, and he often said his model was the French Revolution. Because at their extremes, the right and the left are virtually one. Both of them totalitarian and against freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, and so on. So both are very dangerous. The American way was once a unique, ordered freedom that was different from both the extremes. And we've got to get back to that. Oh, you have to. I'm not American. I love this country. I admire it at its best because America once had a biblically-based ordered freedom, which I think is the way forward for the world. But you're in danger of losing it, or more bluntly, squandering it. Yeah. You know, most Christians today, Oz, can be found politically on the right. And yet, so you would think... That the thing well, I, well, John, about, they're not on the right. Well, they're, they're not. They're conservatives. That's they're conservative. different from the right. Okay. The well, liberal is they're... the true liberal is not the left, and the true conservative is not the right. Okay. But you're right. Both of the conservatives and the liberals are becoming rather hollow, and getting pulled. Yeah, I think my my point was that you know Christians have, have are more involved. On, let's. To say it this way, they've been they're more involved politically than they have been along in our history, I think. And and yet we don't see we don't I haven't seen at least the kinds of things you're talking about manifested by them. Things mm-hmm. like repentance and and uh you know confession and forgiveness and reaching mm-hmm. uh cross and loving your enemies and I mean the Christians are are uh, many ways are are just as as vehement against their enemies as as on the other side what mm-hmm. what what's going on there well, how, how did that happen and why if we've got that many so many Christians involved why why aren't we doing better <laughs> no, you're exactly right because they're not <laughs> acting Christianly Put it this way, John. Every American should be involved because the whole notion of the republic is that every American is responsible for all America. In other words, voting is just one example, but in every area, every citizen should be involved. 
Nothing wrong with that. The problem is that evangelicals, right up till the 70s, in other words, they slept through the 60s, amazingly. In the 70s, though, they swung from an extreme privatization, pietism. And you're a Californian. You remember it was in California, in L.A. in the 1960s, that Rojak described evangelicals as privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. Their faith was pious, but disengaged. Then they woke up, 1975, moral majority, and so on. Well, they swung from overly privatized faith to an overly politicized faith, as if politics was the be-all and end-all of everything. It isn't. There's a wonderful old saying, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. In other words, it's downstream from culture, including music and all the things you're involved in. Mm-hmm. And so Christians should have been salt and light, thinking and acting Christianly in every area. But when they became politicized, they just went for power. And that was absolutely disastrous because they're not all that different from many of the other secular political people. Wow. No, wow. the church here is worldly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we've got a task to do. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, but, but what an exciting time. What an exciting Never. time. Yeah. The crisis is huge. The Lord is on the throne. There is nothing like the good news of the gospel and the truths of the whole scripture. They're exactly what the challenges of our modern world needs. This is an incredible moment. Although wow. it's also, to begin with, an incredible crisis. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the way it it kind of has a tendency to be, doesn't it? The, yep. the worst times are to gives us give us the greatest opportunities. So, uh, Oz, wow, this is so good. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, uh, this is a, I'm going to tell everybody this is about the best half hour they're going to ever spend in the next two weeks. So. <laughs> uh, John, a real pleasure to be with you again. Okay. God bless you and all your wonderful well, audience. Thank you. Thank you so much. And until till we have you on again, just keep on keeping on. You, you're doing such a great work. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Wow. Ah, uh, that was amazing. Oh, good. It was roughly what you wanted. Exactly. Okay, folks. So much. Gotta spread the word. Get your friends listening to this one. Don't don't vote until you do this. <laughs> God bless everybody. Let's make a difference. Like we said. The very beginning, you know, can we make a change? Can we change the world? You bet we can. Uh, go and and uh, your your relationships, your family, your workplace, your neighbors. If we've got to we've got to exhibit a different attitude, and uh, the opportunity is now. So, God bless you. We'll talk to you later, everybody. See you next week. Bye-bye now.